Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Ibu Patel, the founder and president of Interfaith America. Ibu served on President Obama's inaugural Faith Council and is the author of a great book just out in paperback called We Need to Build, Field Notes for a Diverse Democracy. He makes a compelling case that we need interfaith efforts to provide essential services, reduce dangerous nationalism, and strengthen our civic life. Enjoy. Founder and president of Interfaith America, Ibu Patel, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an idea that is in your book and your talks that we need to build, field notes from a diverse democracy. You've talked about America at its best as an interfaith movement. Can you tell us what that means? Absolutely. So one of the dimensions of identity that maybe the only dimension of identity that the European founders of the 76th generation got pretty close to right is religious identity. And part of their insight was if you give people freedom to express their religion, they will use their faith to build up civic institutions that build a nation. And that is really where we stand in the United States of America right now. A huge part of our civic infrastructure has been built by particular faith communities who erect civic institutions that serve people of all faith and philosophical communities. So if you think about social services in the United States, Bridgespan recently did a study that, that showed that in cities across the country, somewhere between a third and three quarters of social services are provided by faith communities. So that's services for hunger, for homelessness, for addiction. Six of the nine refugee resettlement agencies in the United States are faith-based agencies. Most of our large nonprofit organizations, the YMCA, Catholic Charities, Salvation Army, were founded by faith communities. And I think part of what's inspiring about this is so much of the work that they do is for people of all faiths, and it seeks to build cooperation. So Habitat for Humanity, for example, founded by an American Protestant, is really in part about bringing people from diverse faiths together in cooperation. And so just recognizing that that's what's happening in our country, it's what's happening at the local level, it's been a part of American national discourse since before we were a nation, right? I mean, City on a Hill, Cathedral of Humanity, Beloved Community, Almost Chosen People, all of these are faith-based references. One of the big questions for my organization, Interfaith America, and I raised this in the book, is we fully live into being the most religiously diverse nation in human history. 
are we going to be able to welcome the contributions of a new range of faith communities, not just Protestants, Jews, and Catholics, but Hindus, Muslims, Jains, Buddhists, Baha'is, Sikhs, secular humanists, etc. I think that that's a promise for the future. And how do you see us now in the trajectory of this nation's history where there's there's been a struggle between religious diversity and some of the organizations you talked about that are building civic life and service to our communities and intolerance both directed you know, at religious communities, but also in part maybe fostered by some religious communities? So, I mean, there's no doubt that white Christian nationalism is one of the great threats to our country, right? And one of the things that I'm always looking for the silver lining, and, and very often you don't have to look that hard. And I think in this case, there is a very evident silver lining, which is when people see the ugliness of a particular vision, in this case, white Christian nationalism, they are often even more embracing of a different vision. And I think that that different vision is interfaith America. And it, there's an interesting history to this, that part of the way the United States becomes Judeo-Christian America, which is a massive step forward from the Protestant nation ethic of the early part of the 20th century, was that people could not stand the ugliness of the KKK 1920s the racism, the anti-Catholicism, the anti-Semitism, and an organization emerged called the NCCJ, the National Council for Christians and Jews, later renamed the National Conference for Community and Justice. And they ran civic activities all over the country that brought Protestants and Jews and Catholics together. And they told a different story about the nation, a story as they put it, you know, this is early 20th century language of the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. And we were a tri-faith nation, and they invented a term, and that term was Judeo-Christian America. The term was not etched on Plymouth Rock when the pilgrims arrived, you know, and it wasn't written in the sky during the westward expansion. It was literally invented during the 1930s and 1940s as a response to the white Christian nationalism of the 1920s. And I think that we have a similar opportunity right now that white Christian nationalism is so ugly that people will proactively seek an alternative. And that alternative, I think, is something as inspiring as Interfaith America. And we liked it so much that we named the organization after that. We changed our name from Interfaith Youth Court to Interfaith America to kind of embody that possibility. How do you think about the intersection of religious diversity with a functioning democracy and and what role, especially for state and local policymakers, should we think about for the faith communities in facing some of the very real threats to our democratic foundations? Yeah. So I want to offer like kind of a scary exercise for state and local officials and anybody who cares about their particular patch of America. Imagine for a moment that all of the institutions founded by faith communities disappeared overnight, okay? And take a walk in the morning and think about what would be gone. Not just the mosques, synagogues, churches, temples, although that's very sad as, as houses of worship, right? But also many of your schools, right? The Catholics run a massive school system that s- serves at least 50% of people who are not Catholic. Many of your hospitals, many of your addiction treatment centers, a huge number of your social services, all of it would be gone. And now think to yourself, 
what do you do to support the strengthening of those faith-based social service and civic institutions and cooperation between them? And I really think that that should be on the top of the list of any state or local elected official and any kind of active citizen. What are you doing to appreciate the contribution of faith-based civic institutions, the people who are not only resettling refugees, but helping them get on their feet, the people who are doing addictions counseling, the people who are doing job training, right? They're based in agencies that are like Lutheran social services and Catholic charities. What are you doing to strengthen them, to appreciate them, to encourage cooperation between them? Do you have any examples of places where you think this is being effectively done and can be models for other communities? I mean, you know what? My guess is it's being effectively done in most of your communities. So I'll give you an example from my home county of DuPage County, where I grew up, just west of Chicago. There's something there called the PADS program, where a different house of worship, one night a Lutheran church, the next night a Catholic parish, the third night a synagogue, the fourth night a mosque, will basically run a homeless shelter for one night. And then they will help those homeless people get a meal to begin the morning, get cleaned up, and they will help them have a decent day. And then if they need housing the next night, help them get to the next site, right? So none of these houses of worship had the resources to run a full-time shelter. But by cooperating, they were able to pass together a decent homeless uh, infrastructure to aid the homeless in DuPage County. That happens in addictions treatment. It happens in refugee resettlement. It certainly happens in disaster relief. And I think part of what state and local officials should do is just like learn about it a little bit, right? So often state and local officials show up for the one interfaith prayer breakfast every year. I think maybe visit the places who are taking care of those who are most hurting in your community, appreciate them, learn a little bit about what inspires their work and ask the question, how can you encourage cooperation between that Lutheran agency, that Catholic agency, and the Muslims down the street, the Jews down the street, the new Baha'i group in town, the new Buddhist group in town? I think that's the best of America, is people from different identities working together to serve the country. Yeah, I absolutely agree. One of the things that you know concerns me is I think you do make a compelling case that uh, faith communities are providing uh, the backbone of so many of our civic institutions and services in our community. And we're seeing declining participation in all institutions, including religion. What does that bode for the future of service provisions in our country and in our communities? I think this is going to be a big problem. And that's one of the reasons that I offer this kind of dystopian thought experiment. You know, I write about this a lot in my book, We Need to Build. But just imagine if all those institutions disappeared overnight. And think to yourself, ask yourself this question. As fewer and fewer people go to church and fewer and fewer people put their 20 bucks in the contribution basket, what do you think happens to the budget of the local Lutheran social services branch? How how do you think it's funded, right? And so I just think that that's an important question for us to ask, precisely what you just asked, Ryan, what happens to America's civic infrastructure and network of social services at a time when the attendance of religious communities is 
eroding. Again, I write about this directly in my book, and I do not know the answer to that question. One answer is strengthened government services, which I am for, but I actually think that there is something very special about faith-based organizations doing this, playing a role in the civic infrastructure of the nation. I'll tell you what that is. The definition of diversity is people expressing their particularity. That is the sine qua non of diversity, right? Is the expression of particularity. The big challenge with diversity is what happens when you have multiple groups expressing their particularity in a way that cultivates tension or hostility, which by the way, is just like standard practice in human history, right? So in the city of Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there's a Muslim fire department and a Catholic fire department. And the Muslim fire department does not respond to fires on the Catholic side of town. And the Catholic fire department does not respond to fires on the Muslim side of town. These are faith communities that have built institutions that serve their own communities. That's most of human history. In America, we have faith communities that have built institutions, Catholic hospitals, Lutheran colleges, Jewish preschools that pretty much serve everybody. And that is the practical infrastructure of our civic fabric. And I think it is a beautiful thing for people to express their particularity in a manner that builds a bridge to people of other identities rather than express their particularity in a manner that builds a bridge. Hey there. I want to take a moment to recommend a podcast for those of you who are looking for a more hopeful and positive voices around urban change. Our friend Andrea Learned's podcast, Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership, Andrea interviews local leaders who are living the change they want to see reflected in their communities. And she goes beyond city leaders to find corporate and media professionals who are also leading the way, from CFOs to Emmy Award winners. These conversations highlight how people's personal values integrate into their work. There are some really good stories here, so I hope you give it a listen. Check out Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to our show. You talk about in We Need to Build uh, powerfully moving essentially in your own personal life from dismantling systems, you know, with a healthy dose of rage to building systems and working from a place of love. Can you talk a little bit about your journey and how you got to this point where you see a role as an advocate for this interfaith democracy? So, you know, I would like to think I'm not just an advocate, but I'm one of the architects, right? Like I, like Interfaith America, the institution that I've built is a $15 million organization that runs dozens of programs in local communities and campuses with hospitals uh, and civic institutions across the country. We just launched, launched this major initiative with Catholic Charities, Habitat for Humanity, and the YMCA called Team Up, announced at the White House by President Biden. And it's about ensuring that our civic infrastructure, these great nonprofit organizations founded by faith communities are able to widen their welcome to people of a range of, of even more identities and build even stronger bridges. So I'd like to think I'm not just telling the story of an interfaith America, but actually helping to build the infrastructure of it. 
You know, I think one of the interesting dynamics of activism is so much of the most prominent activism is kind of in your face, anger based stuff, right? Like it's easier to pay attention to things that are being set on fire than it is being paid to pay attention to things that are being quietly built. But at some point, you have to ask yourself the question, like, do you have any responsibility after things burn down? You know, and the world is not better when it is dying in flames. The world is better when there are better civic institutions. One of the opening lines of my book, We Need to Build, is social change is not about a more ferocious revolution. It's about a more beautiful social order. And a more beautiful social order is made up of civic and governmental institutions that we need to build. And it's much, much harder to build. And, you know, I think that my initiation of activism was through anger-based stuff. There's certainly things to be angry about. But I think, you know, not too long after I got involved in activism, so much of my anger was some combination of, like, performance and fear. Performance because I knew it would get attention. And fear because I knew the more I was in people's faces, the less likely it was for them to ask me what I was doing to solve the problem rather than just raise a flag in front of it. But, you know, my life changed when somebody actually told me, you can solve the problem. You know, your vision is worth implementing. And that was at the United Religions Initiative Conference in June of 1998, when I called out these, you know, older senior theologians on stage and told them they were too boring and Ask the question, where are the young people at this conference? Where's the true religious diversity? Where's the vanguard social energy? And a woman came up to me after I said that. She said, that's a powerful vision. You should build that. And here I am 25 years later, still trying to build it. And so talk about your work on President Obama's faith council and how you've tried to, especially your nonpartisan work across the political spectrum, but the Democratic Party is largely seen as not the religious party of the country. So how have you worked within, you know, Democratic administrations to help build this movement, architect the movement, as you've talked about? So, you know, I should say that that I also worked within the Bush administration. So so we're pretty much where I'm invited to go, I go. Um, I would have been a lot of trepidation working within the Trump administration, but I never got the phone call, so I never had to answer that question. But, you know, when I was asked to come in and do talks at, at, you know, different civil rights units and different governmental agencies during the Bush administration, I did that. And, you know, I I was lucky enough to be put on President Obama's inaugural faith council, and and right now I'm involved in a bunch of stuff within the Biden administration, including uh, the United We Stand Summit and a variety of kind of unity councils within the administration. So, you know, I've been in and out of government in an informal way. And I would say that Presidents Clinton, Obama, and Biden really care about religion and really understand religion. They understand the role it plays in, in the lives of individuals, the meaning it gives so many individuals. Uh, they understand the role that it plays in American public discourse. Again, as I said, so much of our symbolic language for the nation comes from religious language. You know, I'll just repeat them again because they're so beautiful. Beloved community, city on a hill, better angels of our nature, almost chosen people, cathedral of humanity, and there's dozens and dozens more, you know, and they were certainly aware of the contributions of of diverse civic institutions uh, founded by faith communities. 
And so I remember that first meeting with President Obama at the Oval Office, I think it was February 2009, uh, he literally turned to me and I was the youngest person there. I was, I don't know, 30 or 31 years old, something like that. One of two American Muslims on that inaugural faith council. And he said, you know, you're on this council because we want to be inspiring people to be doing civic action across the lines of diverse faith communities and doing it in a way that's cooperative and that serves the common good. And we want young people to be front and center in that. And so we actually developed a program called the President's Interfaith Campus Challenge that involved hundreds of campuses every year and ran for five or six years. And that really spread this ethic of interfaith cooperation to campuses and local communities across the country. There's a pretty good chance, you know, no small number of your listeners, their community or a campus in their community had the President's Interfaith Challenge within it. And those challenges and that kind of outreach, how do you believe that it addresses some of the ails that we're seeing in terms of partisanship and division in our democracy and helps form a, a stronger, more cohesion as we try to move forward as a nation? So. I think that this is, you know, Obama put his finger on this. He basically said, Americans are able to cooperate across lines of difference and disagreement in civic spaces, okay? And part of the genius of our society is that we build civic spaces, little leagues and YMCA summer camps and Habitat for Humanity builds where people of diverse identities and divergent ideologies come together in a common activity and cooperate. There's lots of societies that do not have that, okay? Now, the challenge is, how do we move that civic cooperation into the political sphere? The sense that, look, we can disagree on some fundamental things while we work together on other fundamental things. And if you think about it, if we didn't have that ethos, American society would fall apart, right? Like if doctors in a hospital decide they're not gonna operate together, because they disagree with how each other voted, our society would fall apart. The question is, how can that civic ethos be moved in the political sphere so that a difference over immigration policy or Middle East policy doesn't mean we can't work together on budgets, right? Or can't work together on any number of other important policies. I think one of the dangers of the moment is that our political disagreements are starting to affect our civic spaces in negative ways. And so the spaces that were once places of mostly cooperation, like school boards, have now become like explosions. That's a problem. And it strikes me, it strikes me that there's the other side of this is also the increasing social isolation, right? In these spaces, not only were people able to put their political differences aside, but they were connected to each other, whether it's through Little League or their church or their mosque or whatever volunteer activity they're involved in. And now as people remove themselves from these areas, you're now, and then we see these deaths of despair, you're, it's accelerating already negative activities and extremism. I think that polarization and isolation are two major problems in our society. They're not the only problems. Right, but they are two major problems in our society. Well, I want to appreciate your efforts. Your book, uh, We Need to Build Field Notes from a Diverse Democracy, 
It's personal, it's accessible, it's hopeful. And in so doing, I think you create an imperative, as we talked about, for local and state elected officials and anyone who cares about our democracy or the health of our civic life to figure out a way to join in helping build that architecture, putting out some uh, plywood on this effort in order to rebuild the core of our democracy and our civic life. And I just want to appreciate your efforts and your thoughtfulness on this issue. I appreciate you, Ryan. Thank you for having me on your podcast. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.